0: well welcome everybody my name is brad elder i'm neurosurgeon at the ohio state university and i'm hosting the cns guidelines podcast series tonight we are very fortunate to be discussing two papers from cns guidelines both both related to thoracolumbar spine trauma and we have authors from uh, both papers with us on the podcast we have dr Uh, john o'toole who uh, i should mention i've known the two authors for a very, very long time, ever since I've decided to go into neurosurgery. So it's great to see some familiar faces. Dr. John O'Toole from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Dan Ho from University of Florida, Gainesville. And so the the papers that we're going to discuss tonight, as I mentioned, both relate to thoracolumbar spine trauma. The first is entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines on the Evaluation and Treatment of Patients with Thoracolumbar Spine Trauma, non-operative care. And the second paper is Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines on the Evaluation and Treatment of Patients with thoracolumbar Spine Trauma, Operative versus Non-Operative Treatment. And so without further ado, I will turn over the the presentation of the papers to uh, John and Dan.
1: Uh, great. Thanks, Brad um, and, and Meyer, for inviting us. You know, it's uh, a r- real honor and pleasure to be discussing this. In fact, John O'Toole was one of the uh, Task force chairs for this guidelines, um, which was the first edition of the thoracolumbar trauma guidelines. And so it was uh, I was really honored when he asked me to be a part of the, the task force. And so there were a number of chapters involved with this, but uh, John and I uh, decided to talk about what we think is one of the most common type of traumatic injuries that all of us as neurosurgeons see every day. If you cover an ER, you cover an emergency uh, room, you're going to see these kind of fractures. And so um, These guidelines were all uh, based around PICO questions, which were meant to be clinically relevant questions that we all ask ourselves um, each day when we see patients. And so for burst fractures, a common type of fracture, one of the first PICO questions we wanted to ask was, does the use of external bracing improve outcomes in the non-operative treatment of neurologically intact patients with thoracic and lumbar burst fractures? So if you have a neuro intact patient presenting with a thoracic or lumbar burst fracture, And you're going to be treating them non-operatively, does the use of a brace improve outcome versus no brace? And I think this is a very common sort of controversial question, you know, whether or not you need to have the patient immobilized in a brace or not. So we used a standard uh, methodology for pulling the abstracts and reviewing them. And if you go to the papers, you can uh, see the, the methodology that we use and the inclusion exclusion criteria and it pulled a number of papers but after uh, reviewing them we uh, really narrowed it down to actually three papers that directly addressed this question and there was a, uh, a level one uh, study a level two study and a level four study and we did have criteria for how we graded them and also potentially downgraded them so Our recommendation was largely based on the agreement between the level one and level two study. The level one study was a randomized controlled trial, a multi-center study performed by a number of Canadian centers. They randomized patients that were um, determined to be treated with non-operative treatment to either a brace or no brace. And they used standardized outcome measures, which were essentially functional and pain scores and followed them for a primary endpoint of three months. There were inclusion-exclusion criteria, but again, these were all neurologically intact patients. And they found was, is that, again, allowing for some very minimal number of non-compliant patients with their brace and no crossovers, that the outcomes were statistically similar between both cohorts, meaning that either those patients that uh, were treated with a brace versus no brace had similar quality of life, functional, and pain scores at their primary endpoint, which is three months. And so the authors concluded that with a randomized controlled trial, that, uh, that there was no benefit to using an external brace. And that was really the primary study, the highest level of evidence we used to form this recommendation. Uh, there was a level two study, which essentially was a pilot study. It was a, also a randomized controlled trial, but it was downgraded to a level two because it was a pilot study. It had less than 20 subjects in each cohort. And very similar scheme and design, very similar type of outcome measures, which were functional and pain scores. They also included radiographic outcomes and found, again, very similar findings. So we had basically agreement between a level one and a level two study that using the use of external brace did not come for a benefit. Now, getting to our ultimate recommendation, this PICO question task force, we came to the recommendation that the decision to use an external brace is at the discretion of the treating physician as a non-operative management of neurointact patients with thoracic lemma burst fractures, either with or without an external brace, produces equivalent improvement in outcomes. But we also noted bracing was not associated with increased adverse events compared to not bracing. So we couldn't necessarily make a recommendation against bracing because the outcomes were equivalent. And we gave that a strength of a recommendation grade B because um, for our grading scheme, we had at least one, we had one level one study. We didn't have multiple level one studies. And so that was a grade B recommendation.
0: Great, I, I did have one uh, before maybe John does does his paper. Wh- how did they pick three months as an as a time frame in that mm-hmm. randomized control study?
1: That was the a priori uh, primary outcome measure. I think the idea or the concept I have to assume was that they were, again, these patients were neurologically attacked and they were sort of going based on the idea that this is a fracture and a fracture should have healed by three months. And again, they were going primarily based on functional scales and so forth. So I, I, I assume that's how they came to that three month. They did follow patients beyond that, but at their primary endpoint, there was similar outcomes.
0: And, the, and adverse events from a brace, what are, what are we talking about here? Is that like DVTs? Is that skin breakdown from wearing the brace? What, yeah, what...
1: That's, that's a great question. If I recall, I don't think that they included adverse outcomes like from a brace as a primary outcome measure. Um, but they didn't report any adverse outcomes. And so um, since they didn't report any adverse outcomes, and again, the outcomes were similar, um, then we felt that the most appropriate recommendation was that since outcomes are equivalent, that you know, we would say that there's no advantage to using a brace, but that that could be at the discretion of the treating position.
0: Great. John, do you want to talk about your paper?
2: Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, Brad. I appreciate being a part of this uh, podcast. I think it's a great forum to discuss these kind of guidelines, which sometimes can be a little dry on the palate. And so this kind of puts it in a context for for a lot of people. And the other paper that Dan and I thought was relevant on this topic was the chapter on operative versus non-operative care uh, for patients with uh, thoracolumbar fractures. And we asked two questions in this setting. Uh, The first being, does the surgical treatment of burst fractures improve clinical outcomes compared to non-operative care? And then the second question was the surgical treatment of non-burst fractures, improved outcomes compared to non-operative care. And we, we sort of divided, made that division sort of the obvious idea that, you know, burst fractures being extremely common, probably better studied and a different animal than, than sort of the, the categories of non-burst fractures. So unlike, uh, to a certain extent, unlike the paper Dan review, we didn't find quite as much high quality uh, literature on this. Topic um, with regard to the burst fractures, there were we wound up distilling it down to about six manuscripts that uh, seemed to address the question at hand, and that wound up being three class two studies and three class three studies. And and, and what we found is that the results were somewhat conflicting. There were two. Uh, level two papers that actually showed an advantage to surgery over non-operative care, particularly with the use of short, interestingly, the use of short segment posterior pedicle screw fixation versus non-operative care. And these included even up to um, in the typical A3 fractures. Uh, but there was another level two study that showed no significant differences in the similar sort of split on the level three, whether they were looking at uh, pain, kyphosis, patient satisfaction. There were a range of different outcomes that, that uh, these uh, authors looked at. And again, uh, depending upon the, the, the study we were looking at, we were finding different, different outcomes. And in that regard, that sort of left led us down the path of, of being unable to make a definitive recommendation regarding uh, whether surgery is better than not surgery for burst fractures uh, in the neurologically intact patient, obviously. Dan was discussing in the other uh, chapters. So uh, again, this wound up being one of the uh, uh, recommendations where we, we, we said that it was really up to the discretion of the treating provider to, to use their decision-making as to whether or not these types of patients, neurologically intact, burst fracture patients should undergo surgery, and obviously pointed out the need for future research in this particular category of, of patients, more high-level studies, and uh, in particular with what we've learned from TELIX and other scoring systems and an emphasis on looking at soft tissue injury, posterior lig- ligamentous complex injury and that sort of thing is probably being a guide for, for future studies. As it relates to the non-burst fractures, this, this body of evidence was essentially, there was essentially no significant literature to really report, everything was level four evidence, case series, uh, people's experience uh, taking care of these. And it's it, in a you know, combination of factors many of these patients are not neurologically intact. And so they're not gonna be able to be studied in a, in a certainly not a randomized way. And also the rarity of some of these fracture subtypes, uh, it's gonna be hard to put together any kind of comparative literature in that regard. So we really were left completely unable to make any kind of recommendation regarding non-burst fractures in terms of operative versus non-operative care. And simply had to say that there was insufficient evidence to recommend for or against surgical intervention. Again, it was up to the discretion of the, the treating provider. So. I think in summary, you know, we, we, we thought these two papers were sort of interesting to highlight because of the kind of opposite <laughs> results we came to. And it was fairly clear cut findings that we were running into with the bracing paper, for example, the bracing chapter. Whereas what often is the case is, well, do I operate on this patient? Do I not operate on this patient? We really were left with very little uh, guidance in the literature. So it sort of uh, was, I think, worthwhile showing it. We're really dependent upon Quality of the literature that's out there in, in making these recommendations.
0: One one thing that that jumps out as a as a question of all the abstracts you reviewed, I think combined between the two papers, there were two thousand abstracts at least that you guys reviewed. If in in such a interesting and relevant topic, why are there so few studies to draw from?
1: Yeah, Sean, uh, I'm sure you have uh, opinions on this. I'll I'll just offer mine. I I think that the the first thing to think about, you know, when you um, consider such a common type of injury, like a burst fracture is, is just in the clinical setting and thinking about how these studies are done, especially when we start talking about like level one studies, like randomized controlled trials and whatnot, is that we have to, you know, when you critically appraise these articles, there's gotta be a significant amount of selection bias that goes into this. So I'm gonna, to, you know, answer your question in the context of, for example, the, the papers we looked at, I mean, so even when we consider bracing versus non-bracing for, for neural intact fractures, you have to, when you think about this, you have to think that the investigators were seeing burst fractures and they may have said, wait a minute, I'm not sure this person should be enrolled in this study mm-hmm. because I really honestly think this person maybe needs surgery or maybe this person, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with them random, potentially randomizing them to X, Y, and Z treatment. And so, you know, the generalizability of all these findings, you know, these recommendations and papers, I think has to be taken into context. So now getting back, you know, and, and certainly when you consider the, the, the paper, that John, the, uh, the guideline that John described, I mean, now we're talking about some studies that were actually randomized controlled trials of non-operative versus surgical treatment for first fractures well, yeah, I mean, then the investigators involved, the different sites had to decide, okay, do I really think that there's clinical equipoise here and that the patient right. could should be appropriately randomized? So to get now back to your question, Brad, was that, you know, the methodology of the guidelines is we, you know, we try and go with the highest quality evidence available. And so, yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of case series and single cohort studies and, or retrospective comparative studies with historical controls or whatnot. And you know, that is, um, you know, for, for, for those who, who work in guidelines and review guidelines, I mean, that's, you know, part of the, the process is that you then start to rely on your, what we consider to be our highest level of evidence, but, and you sort of then lose all that. And it always calls into question then, well, isn't there also value in the level three and the level four studies? You know what I mean? And, and we know that probably there is, right? It's that the methodology of the guideline is such that though, that we, we wait the highest priority to, um to the highest level of evidence. Yeah.
2: But Brad, the other thing I'd add to that is just, you know what goes in comes out sort of principle certainly as with any systematic review. And you know, good research is hard, good clinical research is hard to do and good clinical research on trauma patients is yeah. obviously even harder to do. So you're dealing with a population, it's incredibly hard to study well in any context. And certainly when you're talking about surgery versus non-surgery for these kinds of conditions, it's so hard to design, much less execute uh, trials like this to answer these questions. So Dan's right. You know, we're going to have to look for answers from different different forms. You know, large scale prospective registries and that sort of thing uh, that hopefully can get to the the bottom of this. Because as it stands, you know, as as you know, randomized controlled trials in the trauma population remain incredibly difficult to to carry out.
0: Yeah, they're they're definitely tough to run. And and I don't want to segue too much into the but I know the 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 NeuroPoint Alliance type registries. I know you guys have been active in that as well and i think you know, just this is where just mountains of data may help even though it's not randomized controlled that that may help point us in in some direction but is there anything you know you mentioned um, different levels of evidence are there any is there anything in the literature that points towards well i mean if we take thoracolumbar as a whole we're not finding significant differences but what if we take certain parts of the thoracolumbar spine, you know, what if, what if you focused on T6 or what if you focused on T12? Is there, is there anything in there that, that, uh, or, or different burst fracture subtype, you know, is, are there subtypes of the problem that seem a little more obvious based on the literature, based on your experience that, that could potentially serve as, you know, kind of like a, a initial, proof uh, uh, points of proof.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'll- I'll just say, um, you know, as a neurosurgeon who treats patients with, with spinal injuries, you know, my personal opinion is that, you know, burst fractures, you know, a burst fracture isn't a burst fracture. I mean, there's not just one entity that's a burst fracture. There's, there's probably, you know, a lot of complicated, uh, complex, different variants, and, I um, mean, you know, really, the challenge for us, you know, as Clinicians and, and those who study, you know, in and, and research is how to better best characterize it. And John alluded to a TELIC system, which is really designed to score traumatic injuries and try and identify certain subtypes that are more amenable to surgical treatment versus non-operative treatment. It was just within the diagnosis of a burst fracture. There've been other types, so there was uh, another other types of classification. So most people are familiar with the Denis classification, which is really just for thoracolumbar fractures. Um, but uh, one that came out, what people commonly refer to as the McCormick and Gaines uh, load-sharing uh, classification system, which is a radiographic system for scoring burst fractures. And uh, it bases it off of three different radiographic features, which is the degree of kyphosis, fracture comminution, and uh, displacement of the fracture fragments. And so there have been studies that have looked at burst subtypes of burst fractures based on what we call a high McCormick and Gaines or severe McCormick Gaines low train classification has been and then these studies have shown that for those particular subtypes you can you can better potentially better predict the need for surgical treatment versus non-operative treatment. What I I think the answer question is is yes, there will be subtypes that we'll see that probably data will come out better to better answer our, our questions. And the other thing to keep in mind is that this, you know, the studies that we use for these date back, some of them more than 10 years ago. So they mm-hmm. can oftentimes pre see the advent of even what we consider to be very sort of standard modern day imaging. So again, the TLEX system, as John said, is based off high quality MRI and be able to evaluate the posterior ligandus complex, which some of these studies that we reviewed were based off of x-rays or on non-contrast CT scans. And so all that needs to really be taken into context.
0: I wanted to give our uh, resident co host an opportunity to ask uh, questions. Mayor.
3: Thank you, Dr. Elder. Thank you, Dr. Ho and uh, Dr. Tule. I'm uh, Mayor Sharma, one of the PGY6 residents. Um, The question I have, uh, I understand uh, because of the variability of the literature, no firm recommendations can be drawn, and there's a lot of equivocal studies. And the lack of high quality studies. So, uh, the grade B recommendation uh, from the first paper, Dr. Ho, you mentioned that uh, uh, the bracing should be at the discretion of the physician. So, other than imaging findings, are there any patient related factors that should be kept in mind? I understand we cannot conclude anything based on the literature, but based on your experience and what should be looking at. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And and
1: uh, I mean, for full disclosure, even though I worked on this guideline, I mean, there'll be scenarios where I'll treat, you know, in my own clinical practice, some burst fractures with a brace. And I wish that we had, you know, high quality evidence that would definitively tell us, you know, when and when not to, but I think we're now, uh, at least with our current sets of, of, of evidence that we, we do have to rely on our own, our own sort of personal experience and clinical acumen. And so I think that, you know, there are certain body types and weight that a, a brace may not really confer that much immobilization. Um, you know, there's other factors that so we didn't study this, you know, the, the socioeconomic you know, implications of either purchasing a brace or the cost of delay and, and you know, and rehab and discharge um, waiting for a brace. So, I mean, I think that those are, are certainly relevant factors that we would probably need to explore further in the future.
2: Yeah, Myra, it's a really good question, because if you look at the just at the, the evidence in this paper, or if you look at the evidence, for example, on bracing versus no bracing for osteoporotic fractures, right. for example, which are level one studies as well, you know, it's hard to walk away from that literature and say that braces have any use whatsoever in these right. in these patients. But as with everything with evidence-based medicine, you know, the Venn diagram, you've got clinical judgment and patient preferences in addition to the scientific evidence that's available. And so... As Dan said, there's going to be circumstances where bracing makes sense based on those other factors, not just on the evidence. And I, I you know, I use bracing from time to time more than anything as like a "do not touch" sign, you know, for patients right. to keep keep other people away from them, right. you know, if they're if right. they're possibly in risky situations and that sort of thing. Which that's not going to be studied in any of these papers that we examined for the the guidelines. So I think, you know, there clearly are going to be circumstances, scenarios where where you're gonna you're, you're gonna see it's in the patient's best interest to use a
3: brace, for example. Same question for like operative intervention as well as, as you uh, pointed out, like say uh, for osteoporotic fractures, I mean, so operative versus non-operative treatment, I mean, will that affect the, uh, the uh, final management of these patients?
2: Oh, if they're osteoporotic, you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, so that wasn't included. We, did, we excluded osteoporotic fractures from this guideline because that's sort of a, an animal unto itself. And a different different uh, sort of approach. Um, so we, we didn't specifically look at that. There are actually guideline efforts going on right now, as we speak, to look at, at osteoporotic fractures and the best management for those, because that is, a, uh, in some ways, an even more complicated question because of the heterogeneity in that patient population and uh, and the treatments available. So you're, you're absolutely right. We, we may arrive at very different conclusions with regard to that, particularly because you start to introduce all the issues of vertebral augmentation in addition to to decompression infusion. So it's a very, very good question. Hopefully we'll have more interest too soon. Okay. Thank you.
0: Well, I wanted to give our uh, two guests an opportunity to maybe present any final thoughts, anything that Meyer and I forgot to ask or that you think really represents sort of a take-home message for our listeners.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I, I would just say, you know, as I said before, you know, the burst factors are a, a very common type of injury and, and they, you know, one thing that I would suggest is that they are there's, you know, probably complex subtypes. And my, well, you know, I, I stand by the work that you know John and, and and others and I worked on these guidelines to come to these recommendations. I certainly, by no means, read these recommendations and say that this means that in all scenarios for neuro fractures, you know, you don't need to use a brace, or, or I certainly that you know, there's no good evidence to support surgical treatment you know what i mean for certain types of fractures i think that uh, we all you know know that and believe that there are scenarios where bracing may be appropriate or surgery is appropriate obviously and so i think that uh, you know for those who are interested that you know read the paper you know, the papers and, and, and look at the evidentiary tables and then the methodology you'll get a good kind of understanding of, of you know what the limitations are of the, of the evidence that we have but then also how we came to the recommendations that we did
2: yeah, I, I just echo that. Uh, Brad is saying that you, know, you got to apply the science within the context of, as we said, your own experience and judgment and uh, the patient circumstances, and you can't ignore the evidence, but you got to use it in, in that context. And I would also say that for anyone who's out there in, in the field in, in in treating patients with spinal trauma, we, you know, we need we need you to do good studies. We need you to give us data so we can come up with better recommendations or to contribute, you know, to research studies and appropriate referral centers and communicate with uh, people at referral centers because the, the one of the probably best ways of treating trauma patients is keeping lines of communication open between specialists uh, so, uh, so that we can learn more as we go.
3: Great.
0: Well, I wanna thank you both, Dr. John O'Toole, Dr. Dan Ho for being on with us. It was a uh, very much an honor to have two national leaders in spine surgery devote their time to going through their guidelines papers and I'll, I'll definitely note that these, having written guidelines before, this is a tremendous amount of work that goes into this. And so I want to uh, commend you both for for uh, a job well done. So with that, I will say good night. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of CNS Guidelines Podcasts on thoracolumbar spine trauma. Have a great night. Thank you.